the word of the Lord. And I'm going to ask Duncan McGraw to come forward to read to us from the Gospel of Mark. And as he's coming forward, let me share with you that we're coming today. I've been so excited to get to this passage because this passage in Mark is for me one of the most compelling and encouraging encounters in all the Gospels. You're going to see a lot of familiarity. It's another miraculous account of the inbreaking of the kingdom of God. You're going to see uh, another example of the healing of Jesus, but there's so much more here. This is a story. This is an incident that for me speaks so beautifully, so powerfully, so graphically, so honestly about the nature of faith, how faith is lost, how faith is found, and what the true nature of faith is. So as Duncan reads to us from Mark, let's keep our ears and our hearts open. Good morning. When they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd gathered around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. As soon as all the, ooh, page 706 in your Bibles, by the way. Long story. Why do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Oh, below that. When they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them, and the teachers of the law arguing with them. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. What are you arguing with them about, he asked. A man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought you my son who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. You unbelieving generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought him. When the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. It has often thrown him into fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for one who believes. Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the impure spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said. I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed violently, and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet, and he stood up. After Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, How, why couldn't we drive him out? He replied, This can come out only by prayer. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, be Thanks, Duncan. So, to catch us up, Jesus makes his way. Jesus is just coming off of the mountain with Peter, James, and John after the event known as the Transfiguration that we looked at last week. And as he's making his way down, as you heard, he discovers his other nine disciples involved in a dispute with the teachers of the law. While Jesus has been away, a desperate father has come looking for a miracle. He brings his demon-plagued son a, a boy possessed by a spirit, as you heard it read, who has has robbed him of speech, throws him to the ground, causes him to foam at the mouth and gnash his teeth and become rigid. It's a pretty graphic picture of suffering. And the disciples apparently have tried their hand at casting out this spirit, but apparently they've 
been quite unsuccessful. And just as an aside, this is the first time in the Gospels that we witness a complete failure in terms of a healing connected with Jesus' ministry. Things quickly escalate as everyone's attention suddenly turns as Jesus is coming towards them. There's excitement and anticipation as all the people run to greet him. And what I want us to do as we enter even more fully into this story is I want us to really put ourselves into it by considering, stepping back and thinking about this chaotic picture, this chaotic picture before Jesus as he comes on the scene. On the fringe of everything, on the fringe of all the hubbub is this crowd of faceless and nameless people. They're spectators, taking in all the longing and loss that's before them, but not participating in the drama other than watching it unfold before them. We might think of this group as an audience watching what we might call an ancient world version of reality TV, because that's literally what it's like. And as you move past the crowd, Jesus sees the disciples in the heat of an argument with the teachers of the law. We can only speculate what the debate was about, but it likely revolved around the disciples' failed attempt at casting out the demon. Perhaps the teachers of the law are advocating to the disciples the necessity of more study, better study, the authority that comes from knowledge of the scriptures. But on the other hand, the disciples are countering on the basis of their history with Jesus and therefore the authority of their past experience. But caught in the middle of all this, in the middle of this debate, Jesus also sees an utterly helpless father holding his wounded son. His child, as we learn with Jesus, is so tortured by this demon within that it often wreaks havoc upon him, throwing him into the fire or the water to kill him. As Jesus quickly gets to the bottom of all that's been going on, you heard it, he cries out, Oh, unbelieving generation, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Anybody else hear the irritation in Jesus' voice? I really appreciate the humanity of Jesus in this moment. I really do. Because it's one to which I think we can all relate. We get away for a bit. We unplug. We disconnect. We have this nurturing and renewing time away from it all. Just us and God. And then we come back home. And it all just hits you the moment you walk in the door. Jesus is coming off, I mean, a pretty amazing mountaintop experience, right? For a moment, the tremendous burden of carrying the burden of our humanity was lifted. And as he comes back down, the afterglow of talking with Moses and Elijah up on the mountain doesn't linger long as the reality of our human brokenness smacks him right in the face. Clearly, Jesus is frustrated. You'll notice his rebuke is pretty broad in its scope. It's not directed at anyone in particular, so it's therefore directed at everyone in general. The focus of his frustration is unbelief, the issue of faith. So the question is, what is it about faith? What is it that everyone is missing about the nature of faith that causes Jesus to throw up his hands? And I'd like to start to answer this question by looking at Jesus' interaction with his disciples at the end of this passage. You heard Duncan read this from Mark. After everything gets resolved, Mark tells us that the disciples asked Jesus privately, why couldn't we drive it out? To which Jesus replies, this kind can come out only by prayer. This kind can come out only by prayer. Now, a casual reading 
A casual reading of what Jesus is saying here can lead us to understand this whole situation as some kind of special case that required the disciples to just pray harder. As if the disciples should have prayed a longer, a better exorcism prayer. But really, if you look at it, what Jesus is telling them is much more basic. What he is basically saying is, you didn't pray. You tried to do it yourself. You didn't trust God. The disciples' failure here, in other words, is not a failure of proper prayer technique. It's not a failure of a lack of knowledge about prayer. Theirs is a failure to trust God. Interesting. Do you notice that Jesus doesn't pray before he heals this boy? Jesus doesn't pray. Because his point is not about having the right kind of prayer or how much we pray. When Jesus says spiritual strongholds like these are only overcome through prayer, he means we need to turn to God for help and not rely on our own authority and power. That word hits home for me. Because more often than I care to admit, (laughs) I try to engage the things that life puts before me without turning to the Lord in prayer. I mean, I don't know what yours is, your default, but my default is to rely on my knowledge, my experience, my resources, my abilities. And prayer then becomes for me an add-on, you know, a, a spiritual boost to what I'm already doing. Or, or, or prayer becomes a final resort, you know, a last-ditch effort after I've exhausted all other possibilities. But when I act this way, and if you're like me, when acting this way only reveals that I I really don't understand what prayer is about. Prayer is not some kind of magical invocation. Prayer is not some mechanical formula to follow. Prayer is not even some pious exercise to be observed. Prayer is not a one-way enterprise. Prayer is an expression of a close and enduring relationship with God. Prayer is looking to God. Prayer is relying on God. To pray is to express our dependence upon God. I encounter people all the time who say things like, you know, I don't pray much. Prayer is really hard. I'm not much of a praying person. And this is going to sting a little bit. I, I empathize with what you're saying but you need to really understand what you're saying. When, you, when we say, well, I, I, don't, you know, I don't pray much, uh, praying is hard, I'm not much of a praying person, given how we've just defined prayer, what you really are saying is, I don't have much of a relationship with God. I don't really relate to God all that much. Relating to God is hard. I'm not much of a God-relating person. If we truly understand what prayer is, that's ultimately what we're saying. That's ultimately what we're saying because prayer is about this relationship that we're cultivating with God. Imagine any other relationship in your life where you said, yeah, I don't really talk to them. I'm not much for talking to them. Talking to them is hard. We would probably, hopefully someone would push back and say, well, then you really probably don't have much of a relationship with that person. When Jesus tells us that we have to be prayed up when we encounter severe spiritual struggles, he's talking about having a relationship, a lifestyle of prayer, a practice of looking, listening, and relying upon our Heavenly Father when the invitation and challenges of life occur. In other words, the first thing we need to understand about faith is this. It's not about our prayers. 
The first thing we need to understand about faith is it's not about our prayers. It's about the one to whom we are praying. It's not about our prayers. It's about the one to whom we are praying. To to tease this out, one important thing we ought to notice is that the disciples' failure to pray, their reliance on their own power and authority, unfortunately, in this scene, isn't limited to their encounter with this boy. Seemingly embarrassed by their lack of success, things, you see it, got worse for the disciples. The teachers of the law, who we've seen throughout Mark's gospel, who have been constantly critical of Jesus and his disciples, they call out, they perhaps even publicly ridicule the disciples for their spiritual faceplant. And just like that, the nine disciples and the teachers of the law get into a serious argument before the rest of the crowd. It's an ugly clash of pride on both sides. When Jesus asks his disciples, what are you arguing with them about? Did you notice the disciples don't say a word? Neither do the teachers of the law. It's as if Jesus' question sheds light on how shamefully both sides have been behaving, how dramatically both sides have missed the point. Beloved, once again, the disciples, in arguing with the teachers of the law, are problem-solving without tapping into the authority and power of God. Instead of arguing, they should be praying. But it's even more devastating of a scene than that. And it's a picture that, for me, looks oddly and tragically familiar. Isn't the picture that we have here, isn't this picture the picture so many often have of Christians? That we're so embarrassed by, by things in our lives, we're, so, we're justifying, we make excuses for our failures as the church, we're more ready to engage in arguments, often internally with each other, than to get together, get down on our knees and pray to submit ourselves and depend upon our Father. Isn't that what most people believe they see? Beloved, how we face conflict in our relationships, how we face conflict within our community, how we face conflict out in the world, these are the possibilities for our greatest witness, the greatest witness of our faith as the church and as disciples, and yet it is most often in situations of conflict that we tend to leave God out of the conversation and only focus on ourselves. And when I say we leave God out of the conversation, I'm not saying that we name drop God in the midst of our arguments or drop a couple of scriptural bombs on people. I'm talking about we leave God's presence, his relational presence, that he's actually in the thick of what's going on. We leave him on the outside. And here's the thing. Every time, every time we try to engage conflict apart from the Lord, we will end up being wrong even if our position is right. Please hear this. Every time we try to engage conflict apart from the Lord's presence, acknowledging, wrestling with God's presence, we will end up being wrong even if our position is right. If we try to go it alone without depending upon our Father, we can actually suddenly find ourselves doing what is evil. Even when we insist and we mean it that we're trying to be righteous. When we try to go it alone without depending upon our Father, we can suddenly find ourselves doing what is evil, even as we insist we're trying to be righteous. Again, look at the picture that's right in front of us. I mean, let's, let's really kind of be realistic about it. Can we agree? It's with the best of intentions that the disciples and the teachers of the law think they're battling for the sake of the kingdom. 
They think they're doing right. They think they are, this is about representing God well. They're not, they're coming together because they sincerely believe this is important. This matters. This is worth arguing about. And yet two groups who supposedly worship the same God duke it out theologically while the rest of the crowd watches the fireworks and a dejected father and his ailing son are cast to the sidelines. This picture is way too familiar, way too tragic. Notice that again, when God shows up, Jesus, and questions them, they're silent. They're silent. Their critical spirit from arguing muzzles them from pointing Jesus to a tortured son and his suffering father lost within the crowd. Does anyone else? Jesus comes and asks a question. Everybody else is silent. And it takes the father to go, hello, hey, over here. It's me. I'm the one. Please help me. The disciples and the teachers of the law, they don't, they don't even point Jesus to this man. Beloved, the authority and power that God offers to us, and God offers us his authority and his power, they're not gifts or possessions we receive and harness apart from Jesus. They're not things that we exercise at our own whim or disposal because apart from God, we actually possess nothing. The authority and power that God gives to us, offers to us, comes from being in relationship with him, intimate partnership, reliance upon him, allowing him to work in and through us. The moment the disciples encountered this spirit of evil in this boy, they needed to stop and look up relying not on their own power and authority, but the Lord's. The minute they were ensnared, and this is how it happens, they were ensnared into this divisive and destructive conflict, the disciples needed to speak up as Jesus arrived on the scene. Beloved, we all are coming here today with struggles. If we're human, we have struggles. In what struggles in our life right now do we need to stop and look up? Do we need to stop and look up, not depending on our own credibility, our own strength, but our fathers? We all have some sort of form of conflict in our lives, little conflicts, big ones. Conflict is a part of our nature. In what conflicts are we engaged right now, you and I, in our lives, that where we need to acknowledge God's presence in the midst of the tension, in the midst of this conflict, and speak up? Invite him more closely into what's going on. If we're really paying attention in this story, the person who most informs for us what true and sincere faith looks like is the father of this child. It's the father, again, who answers the question as Jesus arrives on the scene. And as he describes what's happened previously, as he details the nature of his son's condition, as well as how long his boy has suffered this way, it becomes clear that this father has not lost all hope despite the failure of the disciples. But if you can do anything, Jesus' comeback is immediate. He quotes the man in an ironic way. If you can, understand what Jesus is saying here. There's no question of Jesus' ability. Jesus can. His capability is not an issue. When Jesus goes on to add, everything is possible to him who believes, Jesus does not mean 
Those whose faith is strong enough can accomplish anything they set their faith to. Please hear that. When Jesus says everything is possible to him who believes, because this is a scripture we like to quote out of context a lot, Jesus does not mean those whose faith is strong enough can accomplish anything they set their faith to. What Jesus is declaring is God's ability to act is not dependent upon anything. Those who have faith put no limits on the power of God. To bring this home, nothing God does requires our belief. Nothing God does requires our belief. But receiving everything God offers us depends upon our willingness to believe. Nothing God does depends upon our belief. That's what Jesus is saying here. Not, if you can, not a problem. Can. But receiving everything God offers us depends upon our willingness to believe. Man, this is like the, this is the moment in this passage, the crucible of it, right? The father's love for his son is obviously strong. His hope in Jesus is high. And yet you can feel it in the midst of that, the tension he's just witnessed. I mean, we're talking about a rational, all senses on. He just witnessed Jesus' disciples fail to heal his suffering son. Can he believe fully in what is humanly impossible? In that moment, the boy's father, desperately battling his own doubts and fears, utters a prayer of raw vulnerability and confession that I think is one of the most honest things ever said by a human being in all the Bible. I I believe, help my unbelief. I believe, help my unbelief. And then Jesus the same Jesus who just climbed all over his disciples for their lack of faith, finds this father's halting, stumbling, contradictory faith to be enough. Jesus does what the disciples could not. He casts the harmful spirit out of the boy, he raises him to his feet, and gives the boy and his family a new life to live. What's going on here? What's the difference between these examples of faith? To answer this question, I want us to consider again the different kind of faith, different kinds of faith that we see here in this passage. And I'm going to be borrowing D.L. Moody, the famous preacher D.L. Moody, for this metaphor. So I want to give him props. First, we see struggling faith. Struggling faith is like a man desperately swimming in deep water. Struggling faith is like a man desperately swimming in deep water. And this could reflect, I think, the faith of the disciples here. They've been spending time following Jesus, and I think we can all agree they've been swimming in some pretty deep waters. They've gained a lot of experience, but their focus and their frustration remains on the water. They're living off their experiences with Jesus rather than trusting Jesus to work through them. Struggling faith. But there's also clinging faith, and clinging faith is like a picture of a man hanging on to the side of a boat. Clinging faith. And I think by inference, this represents the faith of the teachers of the law. A faith built on the knowledge of the scriptures. They're learning about God. It's a a clinging faith because as they encounter the God they've worshipped all their lives in Jesus Christ, they're clinging to the side of the boat rather than entering into the fullness of the voyage that God has for them in Jesus. 
Struggling faith, clinging faith. The common denominator, by the way, between these two types of faith is both types of faith are based on, they're driven by the will of our convictions, be it our knowledge or our experience. Both types of faith are often referred to as what is called blind faith. It's this idea that we believe that God is with us. We, we believe that. We believe that God is with us. And notice what I'm doing. I believe that God is with me. But as I say that, I'm not actually aware or presently reliant upon him or his efforts. And so we believe that God is with us. And so we convince ourselves from knowledge or experience that what we believe must be true. Beloved, blind faith puts its trust in systems, in leaders, in teachers, in doctrines. Blind faith leaves no room for doubt. And there's a reason for that. Because if blind faith leaves room for doubt, then like a house of cards, all that we keep willing ourselves to believe falls apart. The challenge with blind faith is it's so self-driven with no room for doubt that if you really stop and think about it, there's also really no need to seek or rely on God. Faith is more than an intellectual activity. Faith is not just about us. If I say, I believe in God, and that is the basis of faith, if that's what faith is to say, I believe in God, faith becomes agreement with a statement of doctrine. And there are important doctrines that we accept, but faith is bigger, it's more than an intellectual agreement. Interestingly, Jesus never uses the word faith or believe in that sense here. When Jesus calls this generation unbelieving, faithless, he isn't saying, come on, everybody, get your doctrine right. Your propositions are all wrong here. The disciples had the experience. The teachers had the knowledge. What they both lacked was faith, reliance, trust in God. Jesus' frustration is that they were both trying to do things on their own. His appeal is to believe To trust a God who will not let us down, who desires to work his authority and power through us. Beloved, having the answers has never been what faith in Jesus is about. Having the answers has never been what faith in Jesus is about. And being right is not the point of faith in Jesus. The kind of faith that the disciples and the teachers of the law needed, the kind of faith we need, is unbelievably (laughs) a weaker faith. It's the faith of a father that confesses his double-mindedness and helplessly, awkwardly turns to Jesus with a cry for help. I believe. Help my unbelief. What a simple way to describe the battle that keeps raging within all of us. We believe and we disbelieve. We trust and we trust no one. We build on the rock and we build on the sand. This is who we are. Unbelief isn't good, but it's honest. It's real. Unbelief reflects dependency because spiritual struggle, that inner tension, is proof that faith is still faith. Hungering, seeking, open to salvation. The battle is over when there's no struggle. The battle is over when there's no struggle. If we've settled for blind faith alone, if we've staked our claim in the fool's gold of pure disbelief, 
If we've dared to put all our faith in ourselves, that's when we should be nervous and unsettled. You know, I would, it would be great. I would love this morning. It would be great if I could come before you and take this story as a promise that we can be converted once and for all if we only proclaim our belief. That if we just have faith, that then we will all live happily ever after as good disciples of the kingdom. I would love to tell you that, and you would love to receive it, but that's not reality. That is not the life that we're living. That's not the world we're in. That's not the scriptures that we have before us. Because, beloved, it's not as much about our faith as it is Jesus' faith. It's not about having faith in our belief in Jesus as much as it is having faith in Jesus' belief in us. In other words, and this may be a new concept for some of us, to have faith in Jesus is to experience doubt, self-doubt. Because faith that trusts in God goes to war with our limited and broken selves. Doubt is inherent in all of us. Doubt is inherent in all of us because we're flawed creatures. We cannot clearly see. We cannot fully believe in God and his works. Please hear that. We cannot fully believe in God and his works. Because we think we know better. We believe we see everything. We're convinced that we understand the limits of what's possible. We're certain we get it right. And again, just classic example. Anytime you get into an argument, you will at some point come and say, look, I'm right. Oh, and I'm wrong? Yeah, that's right. Well, you're right all the time. Yeah, that's right. We're convinced we get it right. The core of our sinful nature is to play God. The core of our sinful nature is to be God. To hold on to that impulse, to be just a little bit more confident in ourselves, our judgments, our values, our definitions, than in what God declares to be true. And so we have our doubts. We have our unbelief. To be able to move beyond our doubt, to move beyond unbelief, we need an inner assurance. We need a personal confidence and hope that can only come from God, not from within. Because here it is, our sinful nature doesn't get exercised easily. Our personal demons are not driven away without a fight. And only Jesus can cast them out. Back to our analogy, saving faith isn't blindly struggling or clinging to our own convictions and experiences in order to meet the challenges that are before us. Saving faith is not blindly struggling or clinging to our own convictions or experiences to meet the challenges that are before us. Saving faith is resting faith. It's the picture of a man relying on the safety of the boat by being in it. Saving faith is having faith in Jesus rather than having faith in myself. It's the kind of faith that continually turns to and relies on the authority and power of Christ no matter what the situation Saving faith is saying, I believe, help my unbelief. Because here it is. We don't decide to follow Jesus because we're 100% certain he exists. Many of you think that's why you decided to follow Jesus. And I'm willing, at the risk of being hypocritical in light of this passage, of debating this point with you later. Okay, some of you got that. Okay. (laughs) You think 
we think we decided to follow Jesus because we became convinced, 100% certain that he exists, 100% certain that he is who he claims to be. That's not why we decided to follow Jesus. We decided to follow Jesus. We follow Jesus because we're so desperately in need of his spirit to grow our faith, to strengthen us with his unconditional love as we follow him. And that's where maybe you've got this whole church thing backwards. If you're coming here each week so that you can affirm and nod your head and go, yes, I believe that is true. Mm-hmm, yes. That's what I believe. Yes. Oh, he said something. I don't think I believe that. I have a problem. That's not why you're here. That's not why I'm here. I'm here because I need to be here. You're here because you need to be here. And here is not a building or a time. Here is in the community of Christ. I need Jesus' spirit to help me in my belief and in my unbelief, to grow my faith, to strengthen me with his unconditional love, to exercise my personal demons. And saving faith, if this disturbs you, is always start small. Because growth in self-knowledge, growth in self-possession is a lifelong process. And as I've tried to say, it's rarely an easy one. We cannot do it unless we daily renew our trust in God. Through prayer, that's how we get to know God better and learn to trust him. Not prayer as, again, as some kind of formula or exercise, but prayer is a constant dialogue of talking and receiving and listening Saving faith is the kind of faith built on trust, the trust of a long friendship with our Father. A trust that expresses itself by being willing to take chances, being willing to attempt the unlikely, by being willing to risk and acknowledge our failures, to awkwardly and transparently wrestle with totally giving everything over to God, allowing his power and authority to redeem any and all situation. And so I want to invite you this morning with this Kairos card or on the back of the prayer insert to do something that we often don't do. Get real. Get honest. Engage this relationship with God. Stop debating with others. Stop debating with yourself. And like this father, let's confess our doubts. Let's actually put on this card our lack. Acknowledge our lack. Let's recognize our weakness and actually pray, Father, I believe, help my unbelief. What is your weakness this morning? What is it that you are afraid or resistant or embarrassed to lay before God and say, I, this is wrong. I shouldn't feel this way or I don't believe this. Lay it out there. Raw and as vulnerable as this, this father. Because, and, we, and this is where we have to start. This is where we have to start every day. And it, it has to start here for us. Because, beloved, there are thousands, and that's an understatement, thousands of people out there who are desperate. Thousands of people out there who are suffering. Thousands of people who are restless without God, but who won't come near disciples like us because they see us as too busy arguing with each other. Because they see us not willing to be honest with ourselves about our doubts. And at worst, they see us self-justifying our failures. Jesus is calling us to follow him. And he's calling us to follow him to the very places who go, people who go in the opposite direction when we come. He's calling us to go to the people who are at our workplaces, our schools, in coffee shops, at the beach or at the park. And he's asking us, please hear this. This is the crux. Jesus is asking us and following him to be just like this father and to confess to him 
by professing it before others, our weaknesses, our lack of ignorance, our lack, our ignorance, and our questions. Hear that again. Jesus is calling us out to the people that are out there, but he's calling us to confess to him by professing it to others, our weaknesses, our lack, our ignorance, and our questions. We, we confess in church pretty much every Sunday. Good for us. That's easy. This is safe. Right? I mean, you come here, and we always follow the confession with the assurance of forgiveness. And trust me, the assurance of forgiveness goes with you out those doors. But when you confess to Jesus before people who are struggling, who are desperate, who are questioning, that ain't easy. Even though the same assurance of forgiveness is there. The same presence of Jesus is there. Beloved, this is so important because, again, the greatest testimony we have to offer is being honest that we don't have it all figured out yet. But we do have faith in one who has. The one who still saves us despite our stumbling and inadequate efforts. The one who is putting his broken creation together one person and one family at a time. We have to allow ourselves to become a place, a community, where we simultaneously trust God to work miracles even as we acknowledge our timidity, our struggles, and our uncertainties. We need to get on our knees and pin our hopes on God and pray that it will be enough. And it will. Because he is. Jesus is enough. So you see, unbelievably, Faith isn't certainty about everything. Unbelievably, faith isn't certainty about everything. Faith is being certain that relying on Jesus means everything. Lord, we believe. Help our unbelief. Amen. Amen.